Uh, now as we come to the scripture, let me please ask you to pray with me. Father in heaven, we come again to uh, this means of grace to us, this way through which you pour your uh, grace, your unmerited favor to us as you speak to us of who you are and as that living word comes to transform us. So I pray that your word would have its perfect work uh, this morning in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to a little book in the New Testament, Philemon. It's just one chapter. It's uh, right before the book of Hebrews, a, a little one chapter letter from Paul to this man, Philemon. Philemon was a a wealthy man, it appears, who lived in Colossae, and he was a slave owner, and this is about one of his slaves named Onesimus, who has run away. And so, we'll read this together. Hear the word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And the church in your house graced you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much uh, joy and comfort from your love for my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a, a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hands. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, uh, greets you, and so as do Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. Well, as you know, I finished 2 Timothy last Sunday, and since Jerry's coming next Sunday, he'll preach, uh, and so I wanted, uh, to be honest with you, I'll just share with you my uh, rather less than spiritual um, reason for picking Philemon. I thought, well, I could do this in a week, and then I'll start something after Jerry. 
It's finished, and then I worked on this a bit and said, well, rats, this will take a few weeks. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, that's why we're in Philemon this morning. Uh, I'm sure that God had better reasons than my own just sort of wanting to, to, to work all of, this, uh, all of this out. And he certainly has, at least in my own life. But this letter is a relatively unique one, we could say, in the New Testament scripture. Unique in the sense that it concerns a particular matter that seems to be, at least on its face, a very private matter. That is to say, this runaway slave Onesimus is being sent back to Philemon, his owner, his master, if you will, and he's sending him back. And in essence, Philemon is being asked to forgive Onesimus and to receive him as a brother. Now, we'll talk about that. That's the essence here. And that, that's a bit unique. Normally, when Paul is writing, he's writing to a whole church and, and, or, or to a pastor, as we saw with Timothy and, and others and that sort of thing. But, but he's writing to, to, to Philemon, this wealthy man, it seems that he is, that the, the church there in Colossae meets in his house. He was a slave owner, so he must have some means. And so Paul's writing to him, but he's writing to him about this particular, this particular situation about how he's going to be reconciled, if he is, to this runaway slave and the runaway slave to him. And so that's somewhat unique. But, but, but really, though, Paul, I think, plays his hand. Because it isn't just to Philemon. Yes, it's about this particular incident. But this incident is so, shall we say, instructive that he wants the whole church to know about it. Notice how he addresses, he says, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker in Aphia, which is probably Philemon's wife, our sister, and Archippus, perhaps his son, perhaps the pastor of the church there, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. In other words, everybody's to know of this. So, so here you have it. Everybody probably knows the incident that, that, that precipitates the letter. And so, yes, it is to Philemon. It's something directed to him as we read it to you. You get the fact. He says, this Philemon is to you. You have to deal with this particular situation, and here's how I want you to deal with it. But, 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 but really, it's to be known. It's even addressed to the whole church. And so you get the sense that Paul wants, I want everybody to understand what I'm asking you to do here. It's that important for everybody to get it. And so it's important for us to get it um, as well. The situation, I think, is fairly obvious and just with a, those brief introductory remarks. Philemon, uh, as we mentioned, this master slave owner. Onesimus seems this one who has run away from him, left him, this slave. And, and providentially, in his leaving of Colossae, comes to Rome, which would not have been an unusual thing to do, a place for a slave to hide, I suppose, there. And we, we realize that in this culture, slavery was very much a part of the culture, the, 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 the planning of the culture, the, 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 the thinking of the culture, the language of the culture, that, that slaves would be at times very difficult to distinguish a slave from a freeman. A significant proportion of the culture was made up of slaves, and they were, could be doctors, could be teachers, could be a variety of, of professions even. But these were more, as we might want to think of, indentured servants, those who may have been born into this situation perhaps, but, but, but likely to have sold themselves or be sold because of a debt or come to be acquired as this slave. It may be that uh, there was the best thing 
uh, financially for themselves to be enslaved to a wealthy one, and so they would be. And that would be how they would make their living and how they would, how they, they would live. Onesimus, one of them, he had the name of a slave, a common name for a slave, Onesimus. It meant useful. It meant you're productive, you're helpful to me. It would be a nickname, if you will, even. Perhaps it was his proper name, but a nickname even for a, a, a servant and a good servant. You're very useful to me, as Paul puts it even to himself. So a useful one. But you can imagine that even though in that culture, even though some slaves would have been treated relatively well, fairly well, even wanting to stay slaves, it was the best thing for them. If you could put it like that and understand that, that's a little bit out of our thinking because of how we understand slavery, but not out of their thinking and how they understood slavery in the context of their culture. But you can still even see, though, that there would be great opportunities for abuse, and there certainly were abuses. And slaves could be, in fact, Oppressed. You might remember the Apostle Peter writes to uh, slaves during uh, that day, and, 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 and he says to, them, uh, says to them this in 1 Peter uh, in chapter 2, uh, that, uh, they, that some of them could have been and were mistreated in how they were to live in verse 18. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but when you uh, do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. In other words, Peter's acknowledging, and Paul does in other places as well, that slaves could be mistreated. I can only imagine the opportunities for abuse. Because still, though perhaps in some situations very good, still a slave, still in a sense owned by another, still considered to be useful, more property than person, and, 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 and there you have it. And, and there would be, of course, a culture that would um, support this kind of of, of system, of, of slavery, so that runaway slaves would be treated, uh, uh, could be treated brutally because if slaves began to become free on their own like that and just simply run away and no sanctions, then, then what would happen to the whole system? So you can only imagine that a runaway slave could be beaten or branded as some were so that they wouldn't do it again and perhaps some even killed. So, so you can imagine this situation there. Onesimus, for whatever reason, that he felt abused uh, by Philemon. Though Philemon was a Christian still, in the mentality of Christians in that day, it didn't necessarily mean until they were instructed and discipled as to how they might treat well their slaves. In fact, Paul knew this when he would write letters as he wrote this letter to the church in Colossae. At this same time, it would have been delivered about this same time probably, uh, as well, maybe even carried, most likely carried with the letter uh, to Philemon. Paul speaks of, of, of masters, and here's what he says to these Christians who are slave owners in the day. Verse Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Masters, treat your bond, service, bond servants justly and fairly. And why would he have to say that? Well, because there were some Christians who owned slaves who weren't treating their slaves justly and fairly. So he 
writes to them. Perhaps Philemon needed to hear that. Perhaps he had treated Onesimus unfairly. For whatever reason, Onesimus uh, ran away. And in his running to Rome, providentially, he found his way. We don't know the means that God used. He found his way to this man, Paul. Paul was in prison. And in that imprisonment, different from the imprisonment that we were talking about in First and Second Timothy, but, but, uh, but, but Paul found himself in prison there in a, under house arrest. And so people could come and go. And Onesimus must have been one of, one of the ones who came and went. And he came, and he came to Paul. And in the midst of that, came to faith. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 11. He says, uh, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. That's Paul language for I led him to Christ. And now he is, in a sense, my child, spiritual child, if you will. I'm his spiritual father. And, and so uh, you get that sense. And now, as Paul writes these letters during that imprisonment, he probably wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, and now this letter as well to Philemon. And since Philemon lived in Colossae, then he would send it along, that letter with Philemon, the letter to him. And so he's asking, as I said, for Philemon to accept Onesimus back as a brother. Now that would blow all kinds of categories in Philemon's mind. He wouldn't think of his slave as his brother. He would think of him as, as someone useful to him, as property, if you will. And to accept him back as a brother, what does, that really, what does that really mean? How could he forgive him? What would that mean to the whole system if he forgave a runaway slave, if there were no sanctions? Well, what would happen in that sense? All his other slaves would say, this is great. I'm going to run away. I'll get Paul to write me an excuse, and I'll bring it back, and I'm forgiven. And that's all there is to it. Well, what would it do to the whole system? How, how could this even be understood in that context by Philemon? But you see, there was something bigger here since Onesimus had become a Christian, become a follower of Jesus, and Philemon was a follower of Jesus. There, there then needed to be reconciliation between these two. And what would that mean? And how many cultural things would that just sort of blow out of the water? How would Philemon forgive Onesimus? Well, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. What I want to do today is ask a, a related question, which is, how could Onesimus go back and ask him? How could Onesimus go back and, by way of this letter, ask to be Forgiven. Yeah, if I'm Onesimus, and I've read the letter to the church in Colossae, I would say to Paul, why should I go back? Because, because in, in the letter that you wrote to the whole church, to the church in Colossae, uh, you, you, you said that, that, that they needed to forgive each other. So, so wouldn't Philemon read that and go, oh, I guess I have to forgive Onesimus now? Because in Colossians in chapter 3, we read this, verse 12, Paul wrote to them, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. So I, I would go to Paul if I was an SMS and I'd take out my highlighter and I would highlight that and I would say, why should I go back? He has to forgive me anyway, doesn't he? So I'm good to stay here. In fact, I'd rather serve you than him. I mean, isn't it even better, Paul, for me to serve you an apostle freely than, than to serve this rich man as a slave? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be better? I mean, really? Plus, Paul, it's a bit risky for me to go back. What if he doesn't really forgive me? I mean, he, you know, you're not really commanding him in the letter. Couldn't you command him? Couldn't you be a little stronger while you're just appealing to him? Couldn't you say, Philemon, if you don't forgive Onesimus, then, uh, and then just list the sanctions? I mean, hey, Paul, why? Aren't you stronger in the letter, in your appeal? What if he doesn't forgive me? What if he just takes me back and says, okay, you're a slave again? What if he, what if he takes out the sanctions that he has a right to take out on me? What, what, what then, Paul? It's a risk to me to go back to him. And, and really, Paul, I'm not the only one to blame here. I mean, I have a list of offenses against Philemon and how he treated me. And he certainly underpaid me. That's why I stole when I laughed. And so, so, so why, why, why do I really, why really do I have to go back to him? Have you ever thought like that? When you know you've really offended someone, or you really have. And, uh, and you say, well, I, I don't really need to go to them because they're Christians. They'll just forgive me. So, whew, I don't really need to face that. Or, you know, really, it wasn't all my fault. I mean, maybe this was my fault, but this was their fault. Maybe maybe I said this, but they said this. Maybe I did this, but, but they did this. So, really, I don't really need to deal with that until they do. I'll put it up for them. They can deal with it first, and then I'll follow up. Maybe Onesimus had it in his mind like this, and he said, well, I'm in Colossae. He's in, I'm in Rome, he's in Colossae. We'll never really, you know, see each other again. So what's the real big deal here, you see? And maybe you think like that. Well, I'll just avoid that person. It's a big church. I'll go to second service, they go to first. Uh, you know, uh, they're in this covenant group, but I'll be in that covenant group. They come on Wednesday nights, I won't. Uh, I, can, I can avoid them for a long period of time, never run into them. So, 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 so really, what's the big deal uh, with all of this. And for Paul, it was a big deal, it seems. And you don't get the sense that he's protecting himself. You know, maybe there were some sanctions, I don't know, upon him as a, as a harborer of a runaway slave. You, you would think that would probably not be all that accepted by the authorities. Uh, and so if he was caught, perhaps there would be some sanctions against him. That, that doesn't seem to be uh, his motive here at all. There seems to be, in certain sense, a relational component to this. How can I keep Onesimus serving me when Philemon is my friend and he really should be serving Philemon? So I at least have to ask permission of Philemon to keep him here. But so, so as I at least have to do that. But there's something else here, you see. There's a spiritual component to this. It goes something like this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of reconciliation. It means that we are reconciled to God, but it also means that we're reconciled to each other. So if we live professing to be reconciled to God, then we must also live reconciled to each other. 
live at peace with each other. As far as it depends upon us, as he writes to the church in Rome, we must live at peace. We must pursue peace with each other. You see, not to is to betray the gospel. To not to is to say, well, it's only hypothetical. For Paul, none of this was hypothetical. All of this was real life lived in real time. And so he says, you must be reconciled. I can't keep you here. You've become a Christian. And you've run and hurt another Christian. And now you need to go back. And you need to face that. And you need to make that right, if you will. Now, yeah, if any man has some obligations, we'll get to that. But, but right now, Onesimus, here's the situation with you. You've got to go. Got to face it, really. Jesus spoke of that. I mentioned that during our offering time, it comes in this Sermon on the Mount passage in Matthew in chapter 5. Uh, we, we see it, you see. Uh, Jesus is speaking, verse 21 of chapter 5. Uh, he says, you've heard that it was said of those, uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable uh, to the hell of fire. Uh, all of that is to say, listen, I, I know you, you, you get the commandment that you shouldn't kill, but, but really... It, it begins somewhere else. It begins in the heart. It begins as in your angry. It begins as you insult. It begins in your contempt to one another. So you see, when there's something between you, that can all develop, that contempt, the insults, the anger. He says, so, so it's so important, you see, this, this notion of not killing, <laughs> that you need to be reconciled to each other. So he says, verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, how can you stand in my presence? How can you worship me? How can you say, I, I trust you for reconciliation with you when I won't be reconciled to the others for whom Christ has died? So it's that really, it's really that that important because you see this work of Jesus as we read this morning in our profession of faith from Colossians in chapter 1 again a letter that would have accompanied this um, letter to Philemon uh, Paul speaks of Jesus he's the image of the invisible God the firstborn of our creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, so all of this, all of creation is to be summed up, is to be understood, is to reflect Jesus. You see, he's to be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell that's why he's preeminent, because he's God in the flesh, if you will. He's, he's God. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And then and Paul goes on to kind of flesh that out. He says, and you, who, were, who once were alien and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister, saying, listen, you've been recipients of this reconciliation. Now live that out. And what does that mean? It means, yes, you live reconciled to God. And yes, you live reconciled, if you will, reconciled to each other. That was the work of the cross. I, I read that this morning uh, as well from Ephesians in chapter 2, this, this, very work of, of this very work of Christ, chapter 11 in Ephesians, uh, verse 11 in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul begins to lay this out, and he's, he's saying that one of the miraculous results of the cross, the death of Jesus, is that Jews and Gentiles, these two groups who hated one another, were opposed to one another, now in Jesus become one. That's an amazing thing. As you might remember, in the temple there was a sign, there was a wall, it was called, known as the wall of hostility, that Gentiles couldn't go beyond it. And for a Gentile to be able to know God, there's a sense in which that person had to go through Israel, if you will. They had to become one like an Israelite because God had revealed himself to Israel in this very, very special way. And the sacrifices and ordinances and all that belonged to them. So in order to really know God, you had to come through them, through ancient, through, through Israel, if you will. And, and, and through the law. And there were various laws that kept the Jews and Gentiles apart, the food laws and other kinds of social laws and all of that. And he says, but when Jesus came, all that was broken down, you see, because he was the, he was the, the, the one who had blessed, as the promise to Abraham was, all the nations, all the families of the earth. So in Jesus, all that was broken down. He fulfilled all of that. And so everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, now comes to God through him. There's a sense in which that was always the way. Because all of the sacrifices and all of that pointed to Jesus. And, and he's the one who made those sacrifices efficacious or effective, if you will, in his coming. Had he not come, they would have just been sacrifices. But they all pointed to him. And, and so when he came, it, it made all of that effective. And so now that he's come, however, that wall is broken down. You might remember when Jesus was crucified that veil in the temple was ripped so that all could go directly into the Holy of Holies through him, you see. He says, now we have all of us, Jew Gentile, all of us have access uh, to one, to the one Father through him. Why? Because he came and he made, he made peace. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, he killed all the hostility between God and us and between us and God and between us and one another. The hostility that God had for us because of our sin, his wrath was taken extinguished, if you will, exhausted, satisfied, filled, taken. He did that to make peace with him and with each other so that we would be one new person and come to him with one voice to praise him. Verse 17, 
And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, all of us. And we're all built on the same foundation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure of us, he says, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. You see, God dwells in us. We're his temple. We have to fit together. If we don't, it crumbles. So he says, it's that important, this whole notion, you see, this whole notion of reconciliation. Thus, Paul would go on and say in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says, I therefore, verse 1, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's saying, listen, you've been reconciled. Now do everything you can to maintain that unity that is in the spirit and to maintain that unity in the spirit by the bond peace. So Paul saw the situation. It was odd, if you will, because here you have people from two very distinct classes, two people who didn't really think of themselves as brothers, but now, because of Christ, they are, and they're separated. One has offended the other, and the offending one must now go back to the one offended, no matter the risk, no matter the cost. And he must say, I'm sorry. Crucially, if you will, all of that for the gospel itself. Here's how Jesus put it in that prayer that he prayed on the night that he was betrayed. Uh, John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. See, this is how important. This is why it went to the whole church. It went to the whole church because Paul's saying, listen, this is just an object lesson for all of you. It's real for Philemon and Onesimus. I mean, they got to live this out. But for everybody, I want you to watch this. I want you to get it. I want you to understand that in Christ there is reconciliation even between this one who's a master and this one who's a slave. They really are brothers so I want you to watch this and see this. It's, it's that important because, you see, as the world sees that, then this will be a convincing piece. This will be a piece I use, a means by which they'll see this is really true. This is really real. How you live at peace with each other. To Onesimus, you see, is, 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 to, go, is to go back. So how is it that we live at peace first with God? But we do so, don't we, by going to him and confessing our sins and repenting. That's what we do. We are estranged from him because of our sin. 
and we go to him and we say, you are right, we're wrong. I've sinned against you. Are they like the prodigal, remember, as he was going back to his father? I know what I'll say. I'll say, I've sinned against you, Father. I don't deserve to be your son. And that's how it is with, with us and God, isn't it? We go back to him and we say, I've sinned against you. And we repent. Repent means that we change our minds first about our own sin, that yes, our sin is wrong, and, and now we get it and we embrace that fact and we understand it and we go and we repent. And it's our desire then not to do this any longer. Now, of course, we still do and we still go back and confess to God, but, but really our intent, isn't it? Our intent is to say, God, help me. I know this offends you, and because I know this offends you, I really don't want to do this anymore. I want things to be good between us, and I want to go to you, and I want to live in such a way that doesn't offend you, so help me. That's this sense of, of confession and repentance, you see. Well, it's the same way in our relationships with each other. How do we live at peace with each other? Well, we live at peace with each other by, yes, forgiving one another. There's all kinds of little things, if you will, all kinds of things that shouldn't break the relationship. Some of us are a little more sensitive to than the others and all that. And those are details to be worked out. I say that as if that's easy. It's not, but those are details that we have to work out, you see. But we go to each other when we know we've offended them. We know when we've offended each other, whether it's in your marriage or with your children or with friends. You know, we... We go to them, and we know that we've offended them, and we say that we're sorry. We know we've offended them, we know we've hurt them, we, didn't, we don't like that, that was wrong, we don't make excuses. I don't like the word apologize, as you know, it's to, make an, to apologize, I know how we use it, and we use it all right in our language, but to apologize means to make a defense. It's an apology, if you will. And so we should not apologize. We should confess. We should say we're sorry and not give excuses, not give reasons why. Sometimes we can because there are mitigating things, but we have to be careful not to make too great a defense so that at the end of the day, they've actually been the one who's offended us. We go and we say we're sorry and we repent. The church in Corinth had sinned against Paul. It sided with others against him. When Paul writes his second letter to them, he speaks of reconciliation with them because they have repented of their sin. He heard of their repentance. They, they had come and said, so, Paul, we were wrong. You were right. We're sorry. We hurt you. We're sorry. We sided with these ones against you. Well, we're sorry that, that, that we've offended you. And, and thus, they're reconciled with Paul. Part of Paul's letters to them is to get them to see this and so that they can be reconciled. Here's how Paul writes about this kind of repentance. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What's he mean by that? He means, you know, when we've offended another person, it's very likely we're going to feel bad about that. The question is why? Is that godly grief, or is that how he puts it as a worldly grief? Godly grief feels bad because... Of how it affects, of how it affects God. Worldly grief 
means that we've lost the acceptance of the world. Godly grief means that we've feared that we've lost the acceptance of God. Worldly grief means that we fear that we've lost the acceptance of the world. And so worldly grief leads to death. Why? Because we go, oh no, I've lost the acceptance of the world. How do I regain that? And that's our MO, you see. How do I regain the world's acceptance? Godly grief means, oh, I've offended God. How do I get back right with him? So if we're pursuing worldly acceptance, getting back right with the world and its standards, then it just leads to death. But but we see it says godly grief that says, oh, how do I get back right with God? And how do I get back right with his people? So Paul lays this out, this repentance. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Earnestness. He says, you're really, this is really important to you to make things right because you, you know that this is hurting the cause of Christ. This is hurting God. Not only me. He says, but uh, also what eagerness to clear yourselves. And by that is, he, he doesn't mean to, 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 to prove that you really weren't at fault here. No, no, to clear yourself, to clear yourself with me, to come and to, to confess, to say you're sorry, uh, that you have a great eagerness uh, to say, I, I really am repentant, I really am sorry. What indignation that is with your own sin. What, what fear that is the fear that, that we may be estranged. The fear that, 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 that God is displeased with you. What longing that is to be made right. What zeal, what, what punishment that is you're willing to accept anything to make this right so that it would really, so that we really would be reconciled. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Innocent, not that you didn't sin against me, but innocent in, in the sense that you're, you're trying to avoid me. Innocent in the sense that you're, you're trying to, to run from me. No, 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 you're not. You, you've come to me now. You, you're, you're making every effort you possibly can to make sure I know that you're sincere in this and that you really do want to be, uh, want to be reconciled. And, and so that's what Paul is asking Onesimus to do. To go back even at some measure of risk perhaps to himself. To go back perhaps even to be a slave again. To go back and say, yes, I really am wrong. I really am sorry. Francis Schaeffer, in a little essay that he wrote a while ago, it's entitled The Mark of the Christian. It's about loving each other. It's about living at peace with one another. And he writes this. He says, what then does this love mean? How can it be made visible? He says, first, it means a very simple thing. It means that I, when I have made a mistake and when I've failed to love my Christian brother, I go to him and say, I'm sorry. That is first. He says, it may seem a letdown that the first thing we speak of should be so simple. That is just to say, I'm sorry. But if you think it's easy, you've never tried to practice it. In our own groups, he says, in our own close Christian communities, even in our families, when we have shown lack of love toward another, we as Christians do not just automatically go and say we're sorry. On even the very simplest level, it is never very easy. It may sound simplistic to start with saying that we're sorry and asking forgiveness, but it's not. This is the way of renewed fellowship whether it is between a husband and wife, a parent and child, within a Christian community, or between groups, 
when we've shown a lack of love toward the other, we're called by God to go and say, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. If I'm not willing to say I'm sorry when I've wronged someone else, especially when I've not loved them, I've not even started to think about the meaning of, a, of Christian oneness that the world can see. The world has a right to question whether I'm a Christian. And more than that, let me say it again, if I'm not willing to do this very simple thing, the world has a right to question whether Jesus was sent from God and whether Christianity is true. How well then, how well we have consciously practiced this. How often in the power of the Holy Spirit have we gone to Christians in our own group and said, I'm sorry. How much time have we spent reestablishing contact with those in other groups saying to them, I I'm sorry for what I've done, what I've said, what I've written. How frequently has one group gone to the other group with whom it differed and has said we're sorry. It's so important that it is for all practical purposes a part of the preaching of the gospel itself. The observable practice of truth and the observable practices of love go hand in hand with the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine this picture? Paul, as he puts it, is in prison in Rome, as he puts it, in chains. Onesimus, runaway slave, shows up unbound. But which one is free? Paul is the free one, isn't he? Onesimus still bound, still enslaved. Still enslaved because, you see, he, he can't go back. He isn't free to do that. He has this issue, and there's an issue with all the law, but Philemon isn't free. Paul's free, you see, though, bound culturally. He's free because God is for him and isn't against him. He's free because, you see, he's already said he's sorry. He's already repented to God and to the people of God. Can you imagine the experience of Paul in meeting family members of Christians he had had killed when he was a Pharisee. Don't you think he said, I'm sorry. What did he do when he met those particular people they had had imprisoned? who had lost a great deal because of his work as a Pharisee and persecuting the church. Don't you think? He had to say, I'm sorry. Don't you wonder that when he sat with Onesimus and said, you've got to go back. And Onesimus would say, why? And Paul would give him an earful as to why in his own life, from his own life. Because of all this meant for the sake of the gospel. We need to be free, free in our relationships with each other, free in our relationship with God. How do we know that God is for us? I mentioned during our confession time that we confess each week, and I trust you confess more often than that. Because if you don't, we'll have to, a lot of bigger time frame 
for our confession in our Sunday worship. I trust that you had already confessed at about 8.14 so that at 8.30 we could just do a short one. But we do that, why? Because we've lost our standing with God, but because if we've offended him, if we've sinned against him, how do we really go to him? How do we come and worship? How do we face him? John writes in 1 John chapter 3 that if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before the Father, and thus we can ask of him. Well, how, does our, how do our hearts not condemn us before God? Well, when we've confessed, and we said, I know this, and I'm sorry. I, I know this, and I repent, and all of that. And so we can come, and we can ask, because why? We know we're at peace with him. We have that assurance that we're really at peace with him. You see, we're ignoring God. Trust me, if you're ignoring God in areas of your life where you've sinned, and you're just kind of putting that on the shelf, and you say, well, God will just forgive me. I don't want to think about that. And you really haven't dealt with it before him. You're not really at peace with him. Oh, yes, you may have right standing with him. When you die, you're going to go to heaven and all of that. But in a, in a daily experiential basis, you're not at peace, are you? You've got to deal with it before him. Not over and over again, of course. Sincerely lay it before him. Receive his forgiveness. And the same is true for each other. There is no peace. If we've offended and we're avoiding you know that, I trust, if you're married. You know that, I trust, if you have children. You know that, I trust, if you have parents. You know that, I trust, if you have friends. It's just true. Need to keep short accounts so we may be at peace. So the gospel might be lived out and all of its implications among us so that people can see, yeah, there's something real about this Christian faith. I see it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that this would be true. Oh, dear brother Schaefer is right. It's not an easy thing. But it is the only thing. And so I pray that as we receive this peace from you, God, through Jesus, that that would permeate through our lives and we would live at peace with one another. So I pray for and about relationships that are fractured, whether it be between a husband and wife, parent and child, friend to friend, Christian to Christian. I pray, God, that you would bring reconciliation. And the hard business of thinking through how to do this, I pray that you would enable us to confess our sins to each other in a way that will bring peace. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you there'll be elders available to pray.
uh, after the service. So please uh, come and take advantage of that. Now please receive the benediction of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Thank you.